Hi everyone, um, good to be back on screen again. I'm slowly but surely trying to get used to this whole new experience. I, I just said to these blokes here that um, when, when we start getting makeup artists into the mix, it might be a little bit more awkward again, but we're not there yet. Uh, but yeah, good, good to be back on screen and good to be ministering again to, to the congregation. Um, I really pray that all of you are well. We are shooting this actual video on the 26th of March. And um, so that's even before the lockdown started. And so who knows what's going to have happened by the time we get to Easter weekend. Um, but I really pray that everyone is doing well. And in the midst of all the difficulty, that you're able to find some genuinely beautiful moments. Um, I, was, I was chatting to someone earlier this week, and he was talking about a movie called Collateral Beauty. If you have any way of getting hold of that movie, I don't know, streaming it, downloading it, whatever the case may be, you might want to get hold of that movie. It speaks about incredibly tough times. Will Smith living through some incredibly tough times, but finding collateral beauty, um, beauty that surrounds a tough time. And uh, I haven't seen the movie myself, but I believe it is epic. Why don't you go try and have a look at that? Just a, just a little bit of a heads up. <clears throat> you can hear, firstly, my, my voice isn't 100%. Um, and secondly, also, this is a little bit of a semi-sermon for me. Um, I'm, I normally spend a lot of time pre preparing for sermons, but just the nature of this week, just before lockdown, has limited my preparation time. So in my mind, it's a little bit of a semi-sermon, but more of a discussion. And so I'm not going to be as refined in my presentation, that kind of stuff. So please bear with me. Um, but I, I've really enjoyed grappling with what Scripture is saying around this topic today, um, preparing for Easter. And hopefully some of the thoughts that will come through over the next couple of moments will be thoughts that you're able to just linger on and feed on. And, and your soul will be able to be strengthened by, by some of these things that Scripture is saying in our passage later. Before I get to the reading of the actual passage that we'll be looking at, it struck me again, just in preparation for the sermon, that um, the story of the cross, the story of Easter, is part of a mega story. It's a small part. It's a significant, it's a critical, critical part. But it's only a part of one mega story that God is telling. Um, the first story, if you want to call it that, the first story, the mega story, more than anything else, is a story of love. It's a story about an eternal God that is longing to connect with the, with the creation that he loves. That's the mega story. That's the overarching story in which this moment of the cross actually happens and probably is best expressed. Um, it's that macro story that is, is genuinely the backdrop of every moment of God in history, where God steps into history, where God is hands-on in history. That is the backdrop story that's happening. The mega Old Testament laws, you know, all of Scripture, every move and moment of God's interaction with us is another attempt at giving meaning and depth to that mega story, that ultimate story of God's love for us and a longing to connect with us. And so this mega story is a critical story that I think needs to be remembered at times like this as we try to navigate the hecticness of our world as it is you know, being exposed to this virus. We need to carry on remembering that in the deep crises, we need to know that the story, that mega story of God's love and longing to connect with us is still being told. That mega story will never change. And despite the circumstances that we're facing, 
the mega story is still being changed. And isn't that the gist of the Easter story? It looks hectic. It is a tragic story. It's a terrible story. Many, in many regards, it's almost a disturbing and disgusting story. But in the midst of all of it, the beauty, the beauty of God's love can be discovered. So I want to read to you the passage that we're going to be kind of grappling and drilling into a little bit uh, over these next few moments. And um, it's actually Easter Friday that, that it happens. Um, and although this will be an Easter weekend sermon, you'll see that part of it also refers to Easter Sunday. But Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 34, is the passage for today. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. The people stood watching, and the, and the rulers even sneered at him, and they said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him, and said, If you're the king of your Jews, save yourself. There's a written notice above him that, which read, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who hung there, my guess, got caught up by this whole crowd shouting at Jesus, who hung there, also hurled insults at him and pretty much said the same. He said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. And he said, don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave him that incredible answer, which said, truly I tell you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Just that far in the reading of Scripture. Um, now that passage of Scripture, in fact that whole story, has a bunch of props in the story, not not the not the rugby kind of props. Props the props are, are, are those things that are on a stage on a you know as an as an act is happening. The props that are on the stage that that help us to tell a story well. Um, and the physical props in the story are obviously things like that hill, uh, a hill called the skull, a horrific place of torture. Unfortunately, um, we don't in this day and age we don't have that kind of place. That comes to mind, but in those days it was a place of execution and gore and you know horrible, horrible things. And that was a major prop in the story. Other props were things like the crosses, whips, a curtain that tears. If you read the whole Easter story, you'll come across that part. The nails, even the blood of Jesus that flows. Remember, these are the props that were used to tell a mega story. I don't want to in any way diminish the precious blood of Jesus, but these things were props that were used to tell an incredible story. My guess is if that story was being told in this context today, the props would look different. Um, but for whatever reason, God chose that time and that context to express in the most explicit, in the most graphic way, the depth of his desire to know us and to love us. But there is a particular prop, um, a storytelling aid, 
that we need to be aware of in, in, in the part of the story that we're focusing on today. Um, and it's a very particular storytelling aid. And if we don't latch onto this, we're going to miss the heart of what that story is that we've just re- read. And that is the use of comparison in the story. Comparison. In the story, other than Jesus' cross, we also find two other crosses, as it mentions, one on his left, one on his right, with men, men hanging on each of them. Both of them were convicted criminals, and that's the similarity. But why were there two crosses? Well, I think very simply to find the truths that may be discovered through comparing one cross against the other. What happened from one cross against the other. And so the need to compare these things is absolutely critical if we're going to get to the gist of what was happening on those other crosses. And so for the sake of our sermon, let's dig in for the next few moments into some of the comparisons that are so obvious to us. So the first obvious comparison that I want to point out is the the incredible attitudinal difference between these two guys, these two thieves on the cross. They are in such different spaces. One is, and I rem- I'm sure you remember, one is a, is a bossy bloke. I mean, he, he almost comes across as entitled, um, demanding in that moment. The second thief, very different guy. He, he, he is humble. There's, there's an element of honesty and authenticity and brokenness about him. He, he's contrite, he's worried, he's, he's aware of his sins. Um, one is saying, I deserve salvation. You know, get us off the cross. Save yourself and get us off the cross. The other one says, I deserve this punishment. We deserve this punishment. Very different attitudinal space. One says, I'll dictate to God what he should do. And the other says, I'll ask God to pull through. And again, the dictation and demanding from God versus versus making requests from God, from Jesus on the cross. Such a different kind of thing. Bossiness. Entitlement. I don't think those things have much place in the kingdom of God. Um, I don't know about you, but I really, really battle with that whole faith thing of that some people um, hold to of, of name it and claim it, you know. Um, it makes me very uncomfortable. And, and look, I'm not dissing it completely. There are some things, convictions, that we must hold to dearly, and that's a different thing. But naming and claiming things, you know, demanding things before God, makes me feel incredibly uncomfortable. I love the questions this God, God asks. He says, you know, he says to the other thief, do you not fear God? I love the questions that he poses. I love the fact that he, he requests for Jesus to remember him when he enters his kingdom. It's not a demand. I love the place of questions and, and grappling and in, you know, inquiries. came across <coughs> a couple of weeks ago, Roger Graham shared a, 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 a quote with me, um, and it positions for me perfectly the whole idea, the preciousness of questions in faith. Listen to this quote for a few moments. I'll read it. It was by... Um, by uh, some monk, cheapest. Uh, I wish I remember his name, but if you, if you Google these words, I'm sure you'll come up with the details. It says this. It is, to, it is good to live in the question. A pat answer is closed. It is finished. That is it. 
It goes nowhere and leaves little room for hope. A question, the mystery, opens the space for us. It is full of possibility. It gives hope and life and ever more abundant life. Our faith, solid as it may be, is full of questions and therefore full of life and hope. It is paradoxical how much living in a question can bring clarity to our present experience. How true is that? We see everything in a new perspective. We plumb the meaning of each thing more deeply. Each relationship takes on new meaning. It's not always comfortable to live in a question. In fact, it usually isn't. What makes it attractive is the potential it gives us for for rising to a newer and richer life. But we like our comfort. We're prone to choose present comfort over future gain. Indeed, how many of us fill our lives with doing in order to avoid the quiet moments when the questions may arise? We are made in the very image of God, and so we are mystery, we are question, and God is mystery, and so God is question. I love this guy's faith, the second thief on the cross. His faith, as late as it came to him in life, was not demanding or abrasive. It was questioning and it was inquiring of Jesus. Certainly something there that I think we can definitely learn from. Second response, that our second comparison that I want to just touch on um, between these two crosses um, is the difference between silence and response that came from Jesus. It's very important to note that Jesus was silent in response to one of the, th- the thieves, but he actually verbally responded to the other one. Silence versus response. And sometimes... I want to em- to emphasize that word sometimes. Sometimes I suspect our experience of the silence of God is self-imposed. Sometimes. You know, prescribed answers to prayer. When we come to God and we say, this is how you need to answer my prayer, God. Prescribed answers to prayer have a tendency to silence God, not necessarily because God is silent, but because the message he's trying to send, the message that Jesus is on the cross is ignored. Think of it, that first thief, the brash one, who was demanding help from Jesus saying, this is how you must save us, take us off the cross. He was so fixated on that element of salvation in that moment that he didn't see that Jesus was in fact saving him. And he's offering him salvation just a few meters away from him. There was another answer to his desperate accusatory question or, or accusation. There was another answer that Jesus was actually making reality if only he could pause step away from the answer he was looking for and look to what Jesus was actually doing. We've got to be so careful with prescribed prayers, saying, Jesus, this is how it needs to be answered because at times we run the risk of silencing God simply because he wants to answer in a different way, in a way that is unexpected. (coughs) Third comparison between these two, and it's probably again related to what we've just said. 
third comparison, at least for one of these two, the second thief, this tragic day, and let's not underestimate how hectic it must have been for him on the cross, but this tragic, horrific day, the final day of his existence, for him it became the best, worst day of his life. Best, worst day of his life. Came across that language, that terminology, best, worst day of his life, by a friend of mine, a guy named Brandon Barnes, who a couple of years ago had one of those days. It was a day of incredible trauma and crisis in his life. Um, Without going into, into any details, it was a moment where the handbrake of his life was pulled up and everything in an instant had to be re-evaluated, re-measured, reconsidered. It was a hectic day for him, um, a day full of tears, a, f- a day full of brokenness. But in exactly the same moment, despite the intensity of that horrible moment, Brennan also found a, a new hope and a new gear shift change that, that has taken him on into life in a healthier and in a much better space. It was for him, for Brandon, the best, worst day of his life. Compare these two thieves. One of these two thieves, because of that encounter with Jesus, because of his approach to Jesus, because of his attitude towards Jesus, experienced, I would guess, the best, worst day of his life. A day full of tragedy and pain and immense heartache. But at the end of the story, a day full of hope. An incredible purpose, an incredible meaningfulness. There is one, and this is the fourth one. I've only got five comparisons, so we're getting through this quite quickly. But there is one comparison that I'd like to point out that doesn't actually involve the two thieves on the cross, but I think it's a comparison that we as churchgoers desperately need to notice anyway. And that is the theological qualifications of the thief versus that of the Pharisees that placed Jesus on the cross. The theological qualifications. Um, What qualifies us to know God? What qualifies us to know God? Why is it that the thief, the second thief, was able to grasp some of the most theologically important points he could ever grasp in his life as opposed to the Pharisees who had studied for decades the scriptures that were available to them, um, the the, the traditions, the, the laws, everything. They had within them incredible access to the knowledge of God, or that available to them, incredible access to the knowledge of God through their theological studies, and yet they missed it, and the thief got it. What qualifies us at the end of the day to know and encounter God? I think it's important for us to consider this because we need to understand that those of us that call ourselves churchgoers, church members, We need to understand we align ourselves immediately, many of us, especially those of us that have been here for a long time, and that puts me in that kind of situation. We align ourselves immediately with the Pharisees. We have access to knowledge. We have access to huge opinions. We have access to huge convictions that we aren't willing to change. 
And yet in this critical moment, the Pharisees were left wanting and this thief who had lived a life of you know, abusing other people, selfishness, that thief got what the Pharisees didn't get. Oh Lord, may we have the humility that we need never to know too much. Yeah, never to come to a point of such deep understanding and such great insight that we miss the critical things of God, a humility of heart, you know, an authentic relationship with Jesus. Those are the critical things that truly help us to know God. One last comparison. Um, one last comparison between the two thieves on the cross. And it's the very obvious one. One had a future with Christ that was promised beyond that day. The other didn't. Um, I'm not going to describe or try to imagine where the first guy ended up. The text remains silent on that one. Um, and, and so I'm just going to be faithful to the text. But one of these two would follow Christ into the next life. His future year on earth and on into eternity were secured and they were with Jesus. And that's such a significant difference. Although the resurrection of Jesus was only going to happen in a few days' time, somehow that event was being translated already into Easter Friday where Jesus was saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. And so resurrection was already being a reality for this guy. And so to have that kind of future, I think the lesson, the truth that all of us need to settle with, and again, we just need to appreciate, is that we need to turn to Christ. We need to turn to Jesus with humbleness and authenticity. And as you turn to Him, I genuinely believe that you will find again in this incredible story that is the backdrop of all history that God loves us and longs to be, to be connected with us. That second thief, as he turned towards Jesus and asked him to be remembered, asked to be remembered as Jesus went into paradise, into his kingdom, immediately tapped into that mega story that I was describing earlier immediately found the truth of that mega story that God longs to connect with him, just as God longs to connect with you, just as God longs to see you as his child to be with him. So, folk, this isn't <coughs> a story of two unfortunate souls you know, from a long, long time ago. Um, this isn't a story of, of, of absolute irrelevance to us. In a very real way, all of history, all of history, including our lives, lines up between these two thieves. We find ourselves behind one reality or another. I wonder, would you rather be behind the line of the first thief or the second thief? We used to play a little game back in the day, uh, Many years ago, I remember Kinia Harrison, for those that remember her, used to be in our church. She introduced us to this game. It was the would-you-rather game. 
Um, it was a bit of a ridiculous game, but basically two different realities were posed. Um, and the more ridiculous the realities were, the more fun their games were. So the kinds of realities that would come through are things like, would you, but the rule of the, of the game was you always had to choose one reality. You can't actually, at the end of the day, um, you know, kind of sidestep one or the other. So the one question was, would you always, would you rather be always 10 minutes late or 20 minutes early? So that's the kind of question that would come through in the game. Would you rather always be 10 minutes late or 20 minutes early? And, and you had to choose one or the other. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm ridiculously on time for, you know, for, for meetings, so I would easily choose the 20 minutes early one. Another kind of question for the would you rather game is, would you rather have unlimited international first class tickets or never have to pay for food at restaurants? Which would you rather? I know a bunch of people would rather have the the international tickets, that's not the case for me. I'm not beginning to travel whatsoever. Give me the free pay at restaurants and I'll be happy as, as ever. Here's another one. Would you, would you rather have whatever you're thinking appear above your head for everyone to see or have absolutely everything you do live stream for everyone to see? Which, which would you rather? Which reality would you rather choose? So that's the, the gist of this would you rather game. Um, you have to choose one reality or the other. And in this story, as we notice these two thieves, as we compare the lives and the attitudes and the destinies of these two thieves, who would you rather be following? Who would you rather be following? I want to ask you a question just as we finish off now. I wonder... Whatever the tragedy is that you're facing, whatever the joy is that you're facing at the moment, whatever the collateral beauty is that you're observing in this time of isolation, whatever the struggles that you're going, can you sense, can you sense Christ right next to you, with you, in the suffering, in the corona crisis, you know, in the challenges that you're going to face, even once corona, can you sense Christ is next to you, inviting you to be with Him. Which at the end of the day, I think, is the absolute core truth of what paradise is all about. Being with Christ in any moment. God bless folk. Have a fantastic day.